Welcome to the Architecture of Contemplation podcast, where every week I sit down with a fellow human and ask which spaces or places do they frequent that provide space for respite and contemplation. Time appears to be sequential, right? Running solely in one direction in an ever-expanding universe. Too often it feels that voluntary pausing is simply not an option. Part of my mission, Hardeep, your host, is to ask the question, in modern times, what are the spaces, the principles of design, the underlying ethic of these restorative moments, and how can we unfold these ever more keenly into our daily lives? In learning about the expansive place of others, what you will find enclosed is an invitation, a call to contemplation, which gives you permission to pause without needing to break first. If you're ready, let's go. Hello friends and fellow human beings. Today I'm speaking with Alan Lightman. Alan is currently the Professor of the Practice of the Humanities at MIT and until 2003 he was a Senior Lecturer in Physics and the John Burchard Professor of the Humanities at MIT also. We have a glorious conversation for you today. We cover themes such as beauty and science, being compelled to a calling, the risks of specialization and mental havens. This episode is entitled Preciousness. As you know, I like to have a theme for each conversation, which emerges from the topics discussed. Why this word? Well, across Alan's works, one near consistent call to those who are ready to hear is the preciousness of each moment, and, should we be willing to slow, the profundity of this experiment we call life. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did having it. Without further ado, I bring you Alan. Lightman. Alan, it is a wonderful pleasure to have you here with me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Hardeep. Now, as I like to begin these conversations, a sense of who you are right now in this moment. Clearly, you've had a rich and storied background, both in the fields of physics and the creative domain of writing. But could you tell me in your own words, how is it that you spend your time? How do I spend my time? Indeed, yes. Well, uh, when, I was in, when I was a child, I had a, a, a laboratory at home that I built, and I did experiments with that, and I built rockets, and I also uh, wrote a lot of poetry and short stories when I was a child. And uh, I, for the first part of my career, once I, well, when I was in college, I took courses in both science and in the humanities and, and literature, even had a, had a studio art course in sculpture. Um, uh, I decided at that stage, around 20 years old, that I should at least for the first part of my career, I should put more of my time into science because I knew of a, of a few scientists who would later become writers, but I didn't know of any writers who later in life became scientists. <laughs> so uh, I got my PhD in physics and uh, began doing research in physics, but on the weekends and evenings, I still spent time writing. And uh, so for about uh, 20 years or so, I 
was burning the candle at both ends. At least that's that's uh, an American expression. I don't know whether it's a British expression oh, no. or not. I can get that. I can get that. <laughs> uh, I was working as a research physicist, also teaching, but also uh, writing a lot. And uh, around, uh, let's see, around the mid 1990s or late 1990s, I began reducing my work in physics and putting more of my time into writing. Um, around 1990, I took a joint uh, professorship at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, uh, which was uh, the, the joint position was in both physics and in writing. And since that time, my research in physics has, has decreased to, to zero, although I still keep up with it. And I've been spending almost all of my time as a writer. Fantastic. And very recently, yeah. very recently, I've, I've gotten into the film business. Um, uh, a few years ago, a, a, a film director uh, contacted me and wanted, and wanted to make a, a television series based on a couple of my books. And for the last three years, I've been working on that, which is a public television series which will also be available worldwide on pbs.org uh i don't think i'm really cut out for the film business i'm too much of a reclusive solitary person for that that's a, a as you probably know is a very collaborative endeavor working on film uh whereas i'm my, my writing career which i think suits me more temperamentally is one where i am, am alone in a small room with no windows uh, by myself. And that seems to suit me more temperamentally. Yeah, I mean, that is fascinating, isn't it? It's the, 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 the balance between having something to share and then the reality that in order to share, there must be interaction with the outside world. Yes, but if you're a writer, you, you don't have to actually see your public in person uh you you can sit quietly at your writing desk and uh write a book and a manuscript send it off to your literary agent and you don't have to you don't even have to do book readings if you don't want to you you can continue to, to li live a very solitary life and of course a lot of writers have done that uh like Corm cormac mccarthy and ralph ellison uh, so uh, it's possible to, to, to continue with a solitary life, even as an artist, for certain kinds of art. But, but I think that you're, I, I take your, your main point that, uh, that, that even as a solitary artist, you want to share your work with the rest of the world. I, I know a very few artists who, who are content just to put their, their stuff in a, in a drawer and never show it to anyone. That's right. It's the, the chemistry between that person who observes and the individual who receives. And I think that interplay between, or, or perhaps one could say your role as the mediator 
you know, is something I noticed is increasingly apparent as I discover each of your works. So, you know, the, the physics background is something that's not intuitive to me. I studied, you know, literature and the storytelling piece. So the second part of your working career in terms of the fiction, nonfiction, for me suggests this channel within you of being the person who has one foot in the world of science and then has another foot in the world of expression. So the idea of you as being mediator in the series of works that you have done between the various um, expressions or themes or ethic you have is perhaps the evolution that's occurred over time. So even if you see yourself as a solitary writer, it still is your voice going out to the world being the bridge perhaps, and it's a bridge that maybe you've created to a degree, but also if I look to people who have reviewed your work, they really do give you that title also as the person who walks between different worlds and illuminates. So even though perhaps your nature is one of quiet, I think we are definitely getting the fruits of you being vocal. Um, so thank you for sharing how you spend your time. That can be an interesting first question I always find. Um, and, and talking further of that movement from the world of sort of atoms into the world of letters and words, you know, both at a very small level are about sharing information, about information pockets and packages, and they express perhaps the same themes, but in different ways. One talks about the laws of nature, one tries to give a story about the laws of nature. I wondered in your own perspective, what it's been like being that translator? You know, have you found it a tough crowd sometimes to speak to a scientific audience to bring more of the literary element out and vice versa being trained as a physicist then crossing that bridge into the creative landscape? Has there been any sort of friction either felt internally or the reception of some of the works? It hasn't felt much of a strain to me to cross over between the two worlds because I was doing that even in childhood um, when I was in my teens and still in high school I had two groups of friends I had the math and science types who, who liked definite answers to questions who loved doing their math homework uh, who, who built rockets um, who were very deliberate and quantitative in their thinking. And then I had the, my art friends who wrote for the, the, the school literary magazine and, uh, and, and liked ambiguity and all the things that we associate with the arts. And I, I didn't think much at all about going back and forth between the two groups of friends. Uh, there is one thing that I noticed uh, in, in this uh, in these two different worlds or the juxtaposition of the two different worlds and that is that, that uh, when when I first started writing fiction I made the mistake of starting each paragraph with a topic sentence now when we're in, in school we learned that in expository writing is very good form to start each paragraph with with a topic sentence you know, tell your reader how to think about the, the paragraph, uh, how to organize her thoughts. But in fiction writing, a topic sentence is fatal 
because you want your reader to be carried off and uh, to be blindsided and carried off to that magical place that you're creating. You want your reader to, to feel it and hear it and be part of the scene. And if you tell your reader at the beginning of the paragraph all about the journey, it's going to cancel the trip. So I had to learn when I first began writing fiction not to use topic sentences for paragraphs, which was my normal inclination as, as both as, as an expository writer and as a scientist, because it's, it's, it's sort of the scientific mentality to start a paragraph with a topic sentence. <laughs> that's, that, that's so fascinating. And, and I suppose it's the act of self-reflection, you know, when you realize where your learning has come from. And then, as you said, the adjustment in your own method when it comes to sharing the, the ideas or message that you have. And it puts me to mind of, you know, C.P. Snow's work two cultures. on the two cultures precisely and something I was so happened to be revising through earlier today. And as you said, sort of bridging this world of those who live in the natural sciences or natural philosophy as it used to be known and those who would be perhaps even more existential living in a world of ideas and how could one bridge that? And I think with the nature of your work, it actually suggests that that really is a false binary, this kind of zero or the one. And I sense, and it'd be wonderful to hear you elaborate of what it is about this veneer as if there were a separation and what's your own perception of what actually is happening in terms of the similarity of these two disciplines, just that perhaps we're coming from a different angle. Well, there, there are a lot of similarities between the world of science and the world of the arts. Uh, first of all, they're both creative activities. And a lot of people are not familiar with creativity and science. But there's a tremendous amount of, of intuitive thinking and creative imagination that goes in into science, the best science. Um, there's also an appreciation of beauty in both science and the arts. Um, I think most people are more familiar with, with beauty in the arts, but in science, uh, there also is a concept of beauty, uh, often uh, aesthetics, simplicity, uh, are very good guides to discovering new theories. Um, there was a, a, a great uh, late physicist named Steven Weinberg, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, who, who died just a year ago. And he wrote a book, a popular book called Dreams of a Final Theory. And in and, and one, one chapter of his book is, is titled Beautiful Theories. That, that's the actual name of the of the chapter. And uh, he talks about what constitutes beauty in, in science. Uh, I think that to fully appreciate the beauty in science, you have to know some mathematics. And that is a barrier for some people. I think there's another there's another thing that, that connects the science and the arts. And that is that most scientists and artists that I've known, they they do what they do because they love it and because they can't 
imagine doing anything else. They're compelled to do it. They don't have a choice. Um, there was a young poet who wrote to the, the, the German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke. That's what I was thinking of just now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're reading the same things. So it's a, it's a lovely little book called Letters to a Young Poet. And the young poet, uh, by this time Rilke was in his 30s, early 30s, he was well established as a poet. So this young poet wrote to him and asked him whether he should write. And Rilke wrote back, Nobody can counsel and help you. Nobody. There is only one single way. Go into yourself. Search for the reason that bids you write. Find out whether it is spreading out its roots in the deepest places of your heart. Acknowledge to yourself whether you would have to die if it were denied you to write. This above all. Ask yourself, in the stillest hours of your night, must I write? Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if this should be affirmative, you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple, I must. Then build your life according to this necessity. Your life, even if it's most indifferent and slightest hour, must be a sign of this urge and a testimony to it. I think it's, it's this, this uh, compulsion of both the scientists and the artists to, to do what they do uh, is both a blessing and a burden. It's a blessing because not all of us are, are given the opportunity to lead a creative life. I mean, we're all creative in various ways, but to really spend most of your waking hours with a creative uh, occupation, that, that's a real privilege. On the other hand, it's a burden because when the call comes, it can be unrelenting. Uh, th this is why... Uh, you know, the, when the, when the uh, American poet Walt Whitman first realized that he was destined to be a poet, he, he, he said, never more shall I escape. So those are, those are some of the similarities. Um, I think in terms of this uh, separation between the sciences and the arts, uh, I think it's something that, 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 that our society uh, builds uh, into us from a young age. I think if you look at, at children, that they have interests and talents often in both the sciences and the arts, but then their, their teachers and friends uh, and even parents begin uh, gently pushing them in one way or one, one direction or the other. It's just easier to get on with life if you're one kind of person or the other. And the other factor is that our, our world has become more and more specialized. And that special, uh, specialization has been a good thing that has led to a lot of progress, but it's also been damaging in that it has discouraged uh, this sort of interdisciplinary or mixed understanding and, and being in the world both the, 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 the rational, scientific, quantitative way of being in the world and, and the more uh, spontaneous, qualitative, intuitive way of being in the world. That's very, I think, observant because, you know, 
clearly we do know the idea that you know this question of when you see a young child i have lots of nieces and nephews and i actually don't ask them this question but the question is you know what are you going to be or what are you going to do when you're older and there's normally five or six options or someone's going to be artist you kind of you know sort of a pat on the shoulder or a pat on the head you know that that's a nice thing to, to think of but if one thinks of you know microcosm and macrocosm and this is something you know you fold in very elegantly into your various works is the idea that the small is the large and the large is the small so if we think of the brain with the various parts you know the prefrontal lobe from the older parts of the brain um, the reptilian brain we think of the body with the organs you know there is the symbiotic synergistic nature of all systems so they connect at the small and the large and somehow when it comes to humans we ask them to specialize as you said choose one area go as deep as you can become as knowledgeable in the loosest term but then you've cut yourself off from the rest of the system and so your knowledge will actually atrophy because it's not being kept alive within a larger system and i think that's tragic in many ways but perhaps in noting what's happening we can actually steer the ship one degree and ever so slightly and gradually over time change the course of this and i think perhaps that's one of the appeals of your work as well um even if for me i could see the great beauty in how you share your ideas there is a real grounding within the science still and that for me is a good foundation it's nice how you weave both together and i wanted to actually talk to you about einstein's dreams and i'm sure you've talked about this you know, many times. <laughs> but as I mentioned to you, it really was um, almost reading sort of, you know, like a Borges tale. It took you in and it spun me around and I emerged after a few hours of reading slightly disorientated in the best possible way, which is a good sign for me. Um, I wanted to ask you first, you know, why Einstein's dreams? Why not his musings? Why not his theories? Why not his experiments, why dreams? Well, the, the, there's several reasons why dreams. At the, at the time, I was not conscious of all the reasons, but I was unconsciously aware of them. Um, I think the, the word Einstein and the word dreams juxtapose to each other represents the well everything that we've been talking about it represents the tension between the rational scientific being in the world and the more artistic intuitive way of being in the world uh einstein is is the the paramount symbol of rationality and dreams are kind of the paramount symbol of flights of fancy. When when we dream, we 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 loosen the tethers to earth and fly, and we let our imaginations run wherever they want to go. Um. So, uh, to me, the the. The, the title of the book, which actually came to me before the rest of the book, uh, represents that uh, that 
sort of split personality of the human being that, that we are, you know, amazingly, we are capable of both the analytic and rational as well as the intuitive and more fanciful that we're, we're, we're capable of science and we're capable of art. And uh, I, I think that, uh, that, that I wanted to suggest that by the title and by the, the book as a whole. I think you did a remarkable job in, in capturing that. You know, it's so effortless how you enter the first scene of Einstein at his desk and the chiaroscuro of the light and the dark falling, the play of the shadow and the light. And I think for me, that interplay set the tone for the rest of the work because as I read along over time, as I continue to delve in, as I said, as I read it within a few hours, is the deep sense of pathos and a sense of also tragic comedy. The fact that in each of the chapters you take a different concept of time, and you know it could be time that runs backwards, or a life lived over the course of one day, or you know us tethering to a specific moment and continually being stuck somehow in a time vortex where that's the only place that feels comfortable, and it's that constant tension between. It's a tragic thing to be human in each of these environments. But then there are moments of fun, of levity, of some playfulness. And as I said, setting the tone with that title seems to fit wonderfully well. But I want to talk about that pathos, the, the tragedy that I felt. Was that something that just emerged or was that something you had a view of before you began the work? Well, I, I think that every piece of fiction writing that anybody does, whether it's a poet or a novel, is, is in some ways autobiographical. That because we, we draw on our own experiences, even when we're writing fiction. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, you know, all of us have, ha have had tragedy and sadness in our lives friends who have passed away, love affairs that have gone bad. Um, I think that, that around, that I was around uh, 40 years old or so when I wrote that book. And I think that I was just beginning to, to become aware at that time that the, the pace of the world was increasing to an unhealthy degree. And the, the, the pace of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication. And around uh, 1990 or so, well, the internet first appeared in 1985. And, and, and that's the point in time where in the modern world that the pace of life began really increasing. And, and now we, we, we trim our days down to 15 minute units of efficiency. And uh, I think young people look, uh, send more than a hundred text messages a day. We look at our smartphones every five minutes or 10 minutes. And we're just 
moving too fast for our own good. We, we've, we've, we're, we're, we're losing the ability to sit quietly and reflect or walk quietly and reflect on what our values are, uh, what's important to us, where we're headed. And, and I think that I was just beginning to understand that uh, in the early 1990s when I wrote that book. And the, the looking back on it, the, the the chapters that deal with the preciousness of the moment are the most important to me. The the ones that in which I try to celebrate the moment and to to, to get off of this this treadmill of ever increasing speed that is our daily life now in the world of the internet and smartphone. Of course, the internet and the smartphone are, do a lot of wonderful things, uh, but, but one of the downsides is to uh, keep us, prevent us from, from having the, the time to reflect on the world and reflect on, our, on ourselves and reflect on what's important to us. Just running, 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 running. That's right. The, the sort of pace, you know, that time is pursuing us rather than us, you know, being in command and somehow uh, in a small way of our approach or perception of time, you know, being chased through life seems to become somewhat of a norm. You know, this sense that you have or an intuition for perhaps rumination, contemplation, you know, clearly that's the theme of our broader conversation here, but Apart from being immersed in your works, which I'm sure being a writer, there are moments of frustration <laughs> as well as deep research, but perhaps it's a haven for you as well. I would love to hear from you, you know, other particular points or places or spaces for rest and respite that you go to when you have an active desire to remove yourself from the stimuli out there in the world. Well, the main place that I go, and I don't think it always has to be a physical place, it can be a mental place as well. But my wife is a painter, and about uh, 35 years ago or so, it might even have been 40 years ago, um, let's say 35 years ago, we, we, we made a commitment that we would find some place that we could go to in the summer where we could unplug. And so we, we found a, a small island in the state of Maine, which is a north northeast uh, part of the United States. And we, we got a, a house there, and we've been spending every summer there since. And when we're there, uh, there, there are no roads or bridges or ferry service to the island. Uh, there's six families who live on it, and we all have our own boats. Uh, and we we really slow down when we're there. And uh, my wife paints, and I write uh, or try to write. And uh, we've we brought up our children there in the summers, and 
when I'm not there during the winter months, I go there mentally. Wonderful. So we, my wife and I realized that we're extremely privileged to be able to do this in the summer and that, and that most people don't have the resources, either the time or the financial resources to do such a thing. But I, I do think it's, it's possible to create uh, mental havens for yourself. It could be just on a, on a half hour walk that you take each day. But I, I, I do believe it's very important for each one of us to, to spend some time each day unplugged where we, we don't have our cell phones with us. Um, we're just letting our minds go where they want to go. And I, I, when I'm not uh, on this island in Maine, I, I try to take walks. Um, I, I go jogging every morning and at the time of, of meditation and contemplation. Uh, uh, I, I occasionally practice Buddhism uh, where I meditate for 20 minutes or 30 minutes at a time. And I think that's another way to slow down and get into another state of mind. It is quite the superpower we have, this brain, this gorgeous imagination, whereby within half a second we could be anywhere. And I think that's a beautiful way to talk about it. And I appreciate you sharing that with me, Alan, as well. It sounds utterly glorious uh, to be in Maine. Um, as we bring this to a close, I have a topic that interests me, which is this concept of the age of the steward, um, the idea of being a caretaker of some, in some way of this place that we call earth in how we live and how we respond to others. If you had just one line or two lines, what would you like to steward in either through your work or just through your family life? Is there something that comes to mind that you would like to be a steward of? As, as a caretaker of, mm. of the earth? In any way, as... whatever it brings up for you. Well, I've always thought that the the most beautiful and most succinct statement of how to live is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto us. And it's been my guide for moral and ethical behavior for many years. I also... Um, as I've gotten older, and probably your young listeners will not appreciate this, but as I've gotten older, I've, I've become more and more aware of the brevity of life. And uh, we're privileged to be alive at all. I mean, that the, the fraction of matter, and I'm speaking now as an astrophysicist, but I'm going to bring it back to the spiritual. Yeah. The, the fraction of matter in the universe that is in living form is one billionth of one billionth. That's extrapolating up from the biosphere of the Earth and, and assuming that, that one in every ten stars has an habitable planet around it, which our satellites have, have, have pretty much confirmed. So we living things in the universe 
and I don't I don't just mean on planet Earth, but I mean everywhere in the universe. We living things are just one billionth of one billionth of all the material in the universe. It's like a few grains of sand on the Gobi Desert. We we are extremely rare. We living things, and it's it's a privilege to be alive. And and I I I think about that frequently, and I want to try to really appreciate being alive, being conscious, witnessing this grand spectacle of a cosmos in front of us. Um, and and that that need to appreciate is, is, is made even more acute by the growing real, realization of how brief our, our lives are. Uh, so I, I want to experience as much as I can. I want to do as much as I can. I want to love as much as I can. I want to feel as much as I can. Yeah, I think that's really special and expressed poetically and I wouldn't expect anything less <laughs> from you. Um, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time with me. It was a wonderful journey to take with you. Um, thank you again for taking the time. Well, thank you, Hardeep. You're, you're a very good conversationalist and you're well prepared. So thank you for that. <laughs> That's completely my pleasure. I hope you truly enjoyed my conversation today. I'd love to hear from you. Please do leave a comment Spotify wherever you are listening and tell me what is a space or place that gives you that moment of pause. And you never know, I may just share it here. So keep listening out. Finally, if this episode resonated and you think it might do the same for someone you cherish, then do leave a very nice comment and a five star rating. That way, the universe will know I'm not a solo architect, but part of a much larger, wonderful team of builders. And until next time, I wish you much peace.